You're listening to the Fresh Hell Podcast. Fresh Hell contains stories of a disturbing and often graphic nature and is intended for a mature audience. Please don't let your kids listen to this, or they might turn out like us. Hi, I'm Annie in the US. And I'm Johanna from Austria, and you're listening to your favorite international podcast. This is the podcast that will tell you not only the plain and simple facts of a case, but we will give you way too much historical background information and talk about things like bay windows and row houses and historical progress in child protection laws, because that's how we roll. Be warned, if you came for Just Tell the Freaking Story already, you might be disappointed. Or not. You'll have to try. I don't know. Also. I don't know what's going on with YouTube, but often we will get a notification via email telling us that someone left a comment. And then I go look, and I want to reply, and then YouTube deleted the comment for no apparent reason. In the email we always see like the, the beginning of the comments, the first part, and so far these were not rude or mean comments. So I don't know why that's happening. We just want you to know that if your comment disappears on YouTube, it's not because we delete them. It's so frustrating. We love our YouTube listeners. Also, a huge shout out to our newest patrons. They are Andrea Hyde, Tammy DeFord, Carol Perry, Simone Reed, Beth W.S., and Timothea Frost. Thank you all so much. Thank you. Thanks, Thea. Thea's a friend of mine. Thank you, though. We really, really appreciate it very much. Very, very much. All right, so let's jump right in. If you haven't listened to last week's episode, please stop this one right now and go and listen to episode 206. Otherwise, you're going to miss a lot of very important and some less important information. <laughs> and for those of you who already listened last week but still need a quick recap, here we go. Robert Allen Coombs was born in London on January 6th, 1882. He was the first son of Robert Coombs and Emily Harrison Coombs. Her maiden name was Alan, by the way, his middle name. His birth had not been an easy one for poor Emily, and it was a so-called forceps birth. So this is when a tong-shaped instrument is used to help guide the baby out of the birth canal. This left Robert Jr. with a birth injury, because not only were there visible marks on his temples, he was also plagued by chronic headaches. So his parents took him to specialists. Uh, this is my favorite. I don't know why this it's it's not funny. It's just a it's just a times have changed kind of thing that makes you laugh because his parents took him to specialists and like best they could do was say don't hit him in the head. And they're like, "Oh, all right. <laughs> Can you just imagine though today like you take your child to the doctor and they're like, "Listen, best we can offer you is try not to hit him in the head directly. Like if you can avoid it, have a good day." But it's really for the most part, what they have, but he was also prescribed potassium bromide. His little brother, Nathaniel George Coombs, also called Natty, was born in March of 1883. Robert Coombs Sr. had actually learned the trade of a butcher, but had to change his career path after bankruptcy, so he became a ship's steward on the transatlantic route to North America. In those first years, the family kept moving back and forth between Liverpool and London, but by 1888, Emily and the two boys had moved to London's East End, 
while their father stayed in Liverpool until 1892. London in 1888 was the hunting ground of Jack the Ripper, and it's quite possible that these gruesome murders sparked young Robert's interest in true crime, as well as the so-called Penny Dreadfuls. He couldn't get enough of the cheap, thrilling, and suspenseful stories. Then, around the winter of 1891 to 1892, the family moved to 35 Cave Road in Plastow, an area in Greater London's East End. Their house was a lovely row house with a metal fence and a beautiful bay window. The Coombs, while by no means wealthy, did lead a comfortable life. As for Robert Jr., he was really smart, he loved to play the mandolin, and he was an overall good student. But he was also a troublemaker, skipped school, and pulled small scams to trick people out of money. Robert left school in June of 1894, so he would have been 12 years old, and he worked at the dockyards, but that only lasted for a little while. One other thing is that when he was only 12 years old, in the summer of 1894, in a kind of solo stand-by-me situation, he went on this really complicated trip for a 12-year-old so that he could go and take a look at the notorious and at the time absolutely infamous South End murderer. This was a man named James Canham Reed who had murdered his pregnant mistress. The South End murderer doesn't really get into aspects of today's episode. It's not important. If you want to know more, just we discuss him in episode 206. So go back and re-listen. But he did. He went really out of his way as a 12-year-old to sort of run away from home and attend the trial so he could get a look at this infamous murderer. Uh, We left off with young Robert purchasing a knife and hiding it in his family's home. All right. So just like last week, the sources are contemporary news articles of the day, and most of all, the book The Wicked Boy by Kate Summerscale. I w- we should probably note that this week's episode is a little bit uh, gruesome. It's kind of, you might not want to eat. I mean, for those who are affected by that kind of thing. So it's now summer and Robert Jr. is 13 years old. His brother Neddy is 12. Robert Sr. has left the family on either 5th or 6th of July. That was either a Friday or a Saturday to work on one of the ships going from London to New York. So that means that he would be gone for five to six weeks. He had left the family enough money to pay their rent, uh, groceries, and all the other bills. And on the night from Sunday 7th of July to Monday the 8th of July, Robert slept in his parents' bedroom, sharing the bed with his mother, 37-year-old Emily. Early the next morning, young Robert leaves the bedroom and carefully locks the door behind him. Then he goes and gets his brother from the second bedroom, and the two boys get dressed and they go over to their neighbor's house. They call for the neighbor if he could do them a favor and hand the landlord their rent that was due that day. I think how it worked back then was that the landlord or someone hired by the landlord or landlady would come in person and collect the rent and it would all be noted down in the rent book. They didn't have, you know, um, transferring money via bank and these kind of things, obviously. So it had to be paid in person. And the neighbor goes like, yeah, sure, I can give them your rent, but why are you not doing it yourself? And Robert informs him that he and Neddy are going to watch their favorite cricket player at Lord's Cricket Ground in North London. This cricket ground still exists today, by the way, and nowadays it can hold 31,000 spectators. I have to admit, I have absolutely no idea about cricket. I can identify a cricket bat. Mm -hmm. Uh, I know they can also be called willow, but that's about it. Do you know anything about cricket? 
Not really. Our last visit had our hotel was at a cricket ground, and my sister's room kind of overlooked the cricket field pitch. Just the fact I'm not sure what it's called probably tells you everything you need to know about my knowledge. But yeah, I don't know. It's It goes on a real long time. We don't know a lot or anything at all no. about cricket, but Robert and Nettie were big fans of cricket. And so the neighbor says, uh, where's your mom? Is she coming with you? He obviously knows that their dad is not home. And Robert tells him that no, their mom is getting ready to leave the house. She has to go to Liverpool. She had just been informed that a rich uncle had died in Africa and that she was about to inherit a big sum of money. The neighbor agrees to pay the rent with the money Robert hands him and the boys skedaddle off to Lords to see a gentleman versus players game. The boys are there to see their favorite cricket player, William Gilbert Grace, who is considered one of the greatest cricketeers. Is that the word cricketeer of all time? Cricketer? A cricketer. <laughs> greatest cricketers of all time. Cricketeers sound so much nicer, like adventurous. It sounds like the person who makes the cricket puppet work at Disney is a cricketeer. <laughs> <laughs> It's just specifically that one puppet. <laughs> I think. I could be completely wrong. Watch it as cricketeers. And everyone's going to be like, Annie, you think you know everything. So Grace played a significant role in shaping the modern game of cricket. And throughout his career, Grace set numerous records and achieved many milestones. And he also had a wax figure built after him at Madame Tussauds in London back in the days. Not nowadays, obviously. I really don't want to, you know, inform you now about all the the history of cricket and what gentlemen versus players means. I mean, in short, gentlemen versus players was just two different classes of, of players. The more professional ones who were mostly working class and the men who came from a wealthy background, they were the gentlemen and yeah. they didn't. It's like wealthy people started playing the sport, or they might have already been playing the sport, but it's like wealthy people played it as kind of a, a gentlemanly hobby, yeah, right, versus people who played it more professionally. And then you had this very, I think it were a big hit to have gentlemen teams play versus player teams and to see who wins, these mm -hmm. kind of things. It's a little bit classist, so. Yeah. I mean, there's probably still signs of that if we knew anything about cricket. But in, in any case, Robert and Natty, they're huge cricket fans. And so they make their way to Lourdes, and they're there with another 12,000 other spectators. Now, one thing you should know is that cricket is a very long game, meaning that the matches really can take from seven hours or so to over 40 hours, spanning days, depending on the kind of match it is. You know what it reminds me of? What's that? Trial by duel, trial by combat. Oh, yeah. Remember, I was like, if you didn't die the first day, then you had to fight again the next day and the next day and the next day. Yeah, I think cricket rules are kind of the way we wish other rules were. Like, the winner is the actual winner. It's not, it's not, it's not like you guys play for hours and then it's just a fluke of whoever gets, you know, sudden death. We don't, uh, anyway, mm. okay, doesn't matter. They're at the, they're at the thing and cricket can last ages. So it's around 7 p.m. that day that people leave Lords. Robert and Natty arrive home at 35 Cave Road around 9 p.m. And there they go to sleep. But they don't go into the upstairs bedroom, but rather they go into the back parlor, where Robert slept on the sofa and Natty rested on the armchair. The very next day, the two boys make their way once again to Lord's to see the rest of the match. Some neighbors would later testify that they had seen both boys walking down the sidewalk. 
Again, around 7 p.m., Natty and Robert left Lord's, but this time they didn't walk straight home. This time they went to the Theatre Royale, Stratford East, that had only opened seven months earlier. There they watched a play called Light Ahead by an author named Herbert Leonard. Now, if you'd never heard about Mr. Leonard and his work, don't worry, neither had we, and there wasn't that much to find out about him. What we did find was the review for Light Ahead from 1891. This is savage. Talk about ruining a show, because if you'd never seen it, why would... All right, so you'll understand why. Okay, so here is what the era had to say about it after the world premiere at the Surrey Theatre. So this is from the era, dated 28th of November, 1891, which was a Saturday. Page 9. Quote, Mr. Herbert Leonard's play, which was produced at the Surrey Theatre on Monday, shows much inexperience and some promise. That most of the author's ideas are old matters but little. The chief defect of the piece is that, ancient or novel, the notions are handled so crudely that they fail to produce the proper effect. The action opens, in the orthodox manner, with the murder of an elderly gentleman by the villain. All the traditions of melodrama are observed. We have the safe in the drawing room, the revolver shot which does not summon the servants, the entry of the hero on the scene, and his false accusation by the real offender. The latter is one Arthur Druce, formerly in the employment of Nicholas Renville, a shipbuilder. Dismissed therefrom for dishonesty, he has taken to passing bad money with the assistance of Dick Pargles, a groom. Druce is robbing the shipbuilder's safe when he is interrupted by Renville. Druce shoots him dead, and Charles Titherrage, a young engineer, coming in after the murder's escape, is suspected of the crime. He escapes from England by steamer and, springing overboard in the night, swims to a fishing shack near at hand, is taken on board, and is brought back to the village of Longcliffe, where, under an assumed name, he becomes one of the little community. Meanwhile, Druce has made some use of papers which he took from the safe to establish his identity as the long-lost eldest son of Sir Walter Garston, a retired admiral. The young man was supposed to have died in Australia, but Druce, by his audacity and astuteness, gets himself received as Sir Walter's heir. In this character, he meets Titheridge at Longcliffe and denounces him to the police as the murderer of Nicholas Renville. Titheridge believes himself to be a bigamist, and his first wife, nay, Lucy Durlaw, is wrecked on the coast. Dan Durlaw, a fisherman, believing that Titheridge is the seducer of his, Durlaw's sister, is actuated by revenge and betrays the hero to the police. Who's the hero? I'm, I think it's... Titheridge? No. I think it's... Um... Oh, yeah. I think Titheridge. Yes. Titheridge. Titheridge is the hero, I think. But everyone thinks he's the villain. Yeah, got Yeah, it. I think that's what's happening. Okay. So then we have Dan Durlaw. Dan Durlaw, a fisherman, believing that Titheridge is the seducer of his, Durlaw's sister, is actuated by revenge and betrays the hero to the police. Lucy, however, had been deserted by another before he met her. Titheridge married her and treated her well, till, hearing that she was dead, he wedded Mabel. When Lucy speaks to her brother of the man who has wronged her, Durlow thinks she is referring to Titheridge, but 
his error being afterwards explained to him, he heads the fishermen in an attack on the police, under cover of which the fugitive escapes to a cave on the seacoast, <laughs> where, in the last act, a detective, who has been on the track of Druce for some time, comes forward and arrests him for the murder. Pagels, who has narrowly escaped being, quote, put out of the way by Druce in the previous act, turning up to give evidence. A convenient former marriage of Lucy's frees Titheridge from the position of a bigamist, and he and Mabel are happily united. <laughs> what is... I, I just want to lie down and cry. I, I don't know what's happening so, here. So he's now it's written out the entirety of the plot, and then he gives the review. <laughs> Light Ahead is an uneven, straggling piece, and the author's method is uncertain and amateurish. Mr. Leonard has not yet acquired the art of utilizing his material to best advantage, but his attempt shows much promise, and he may be encouraged to proceed in the line of business which with he has chosen, and for which he seems to have several qualifications. The Surrey Company certainly worked very hard, and did, <laughs> <laughs> and did much to conceal the defects of the piece. End quote. They were like, listen, everybody did the best they could with what they had. And what they had was garbage. <laughs> <laughs> it's not, it's not great. None of it's great. So the next time you get a bad review, just remember. Okay, so after the play, Robert and Natty head home and once more they sleep in the back parlor, not in the bedroom upstairs. So now it's Wednesday, 10th of July. It's a hot summer day. I think the match at Lord's would have still continued, but they didn't go there on the third day. Robert takes the key to his parents' bedroom and both boys go upstairs, unlock the door and walk in. They open the blinds that had been closed uh, since Sunday and then they look for money and any valuables they could find. After paying the rent and spending money on cricket and theaters and transportation, they were running out of cash. They now had a silver and a gold watch, but them being children, they knew that they would most likely not be able to pawn off the valuables. So they decided to head to the docks, where they would ask one of their father's acquaintances to help them. They were looking for a man named John Fox, who a couple of years ago had worked as an assistant to Robert Coombs Sr., allegedly. But they were kind of good acquaintances, mm. we know that. Yeah. After a few hours, they finally find Mr. Fox. The dogs were huge, and apparently he wasn't easy to track down. He was a man in his 40s described as having a thin moustache mustache, and a straggly beard. He was having some mental health issues. He was maybe developmentally delayed, or I'm trying to think uh, what the correct terminology is now. So he had some, he had some developmental delays, probably, and... A lower yeah. IQ. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Also, he was said to be scared of the sea now because he had been on a he had been on a ship called the Egypt, and that ship caught fire, and he was hurt real badly. Like a lot of people got injured, and it, it was a bad thing. And since that day, he didn't go out on the sea anymore. He didn't work on ships anymore. He just worked on the docks. Yeah. So he's a this poor guy, he already, you know, has to work harder than most. And then he's now got PTSD. So he's working on... Yeah, absolutely PTSD, yeah. I would say, yeah. From the way they describe Yeah, if they describe someone as being scared of the sea or, you know, shell shock is PTSD. There's yeah. so many things now that we know are PTSD. 
So Robert finds Fox and the boy tells him, listen, our father is on sea and our mother had to go to Liverpool on short notice. But she told me to come looking for you and tell you that she wants to come stay with us at the house and look after us. And once she returns, she will pay you half a crown for each day you had to take care of us. Now, if I use the inflation calculator correctly, that would be 13 and a half British pounds today. So that's 15 and a half euros or 17 dollars per day. That doesn't sound like much, but apparently for the time, a decent sum for unskilled work. Plus they would feed him. Plus he would be sleeping in a house for a couple of days instead of the dogs. So that was an incentive for sure. And they also told him that their mother had laid out one of their dad's old suits to give it to John Fox. So it was a good deal overall and John Fox was happy to accept. So the three make their way back to the house on Cave Road and once they arrive, Robert hands John a grey tweed suit that looked actually brand new. Then he tells the men that their mother wanted them to pawn two watches, one gold, one silver, so that they would have enough money until she would return. Once returned, she would get the watches back. No worry at all. Because a very rich uncle in Africa had died, and all Robert knew was that apparently they now had become rich overnight. So John Fox takes this nice-looking tweed suit and puts it on, and then he takes the two watches, and he goes to the pawn shops to see how much money he would get for them. After a while, he returns to the boys with 20 shillings, so that's one pound. Uh, today, that would be 107 pound or 136 dollars or 125 euros. Also, the interest rate was 25% and they had three months to buy the watches back. Then, as night falls, Robert, Nettie and John make their beds in the back parlor, once more ignoring the allegedly empty beds in the bedrooms upstairs. And with their newly acquired funds, the three make the best out of the next couple of days. They go out for coffee, they have nice meals, they take cabs and carriages to get around, they play cricket and they go to parks where they would play with little sailboats on a pond. But I also have to say that Robert apparently often cooked meals for the three of them. He took care of the house, to his ability, he cleaned, he washed the dishes and the like. He did the laundry, all these things. I assume that his mom had taught him well with him not being in school anymore and not working at the moment. He had to help his mom with the household chores. And in the evenings, the three would sit in the back parlor where John Fox smoked a pipe. And Robert kept asking Fox if he knew the way to India and that he had a plan for him to take them on an exotic island. But it didn't matter that they didn't only dine out but also ate some home-cooked meals. Pretty soon the money was almost gone once more. So Robert came up with yet another scheme. He wrote a letter to the cashier of the Royal Albert Dog. Remember that was the position John C. Reed, the South End murderer, used to have just a year prior. So Robert wrote a letter asking for an advance on his father's salary as their mother had fallen ill and he needed to call for a doctor. And he handed John Fox the letter and told him to take it to the cashier. But remember from last week that that wasn't his first time that Robert tried to pull something like this and so the cashier got suspicious. And he told Fox that he wanted to see a doctor's note about the case. John Fox returned to Robert, told him what the cashier had said and Robert, smart and not easily scared off, took an old doctor's note and simply ripped off the date. He also handed Fox his beloved mandolin and told him to pawn it. And then Robert wrote a letter to his father that read, quote, Dear Pa, I'm very sorry to inform you that Mima has hurt her hands. You know that sore on her finger, it has spread out all over her hands and is unable to write to you. 
Just before I had written in this letter, a bill from Mr. Greenovis come and Ma had to pay it. Mr. Griffin also had charged a heavy doctor's bill. Ma said, will you please send her home a dollar or two? We are all very well and Ma's hand improving. Ma was offered four pounds for build a mockingbird. That's the exotic bird they had, an American mockingbird. I enclose the bill and hoping you are very well. I remain your loving son, R. Coombs, end quote. And he did one more thing. He wrote a letter to the editor of the Evening News saying, quote, Sir, will you please be kind enough to place my advertisement in the Evening News for one week? I sent the money in stamps. And then he, he added what he wanted the ad to say. Wanted, £30 for six months will pay £6 a month by installments. Write to RC, 35 Cave Road, Barking Road, Plaster E, end quote. So he was asking for a private loan via newspaper and it seems that this used to be not uncommon at the time and to entice potential creditors he offered a rather generous interest rate. So this all shows that young Robert was desperate for money. On 15th of July, so seven days after their mother had allegedly gone to Liverpool, a relative visited the Coombs' home. It was Robert Sr.'s sister-in-law, her name was also Emily, and she was married to one of Robert's younger brothers. She knocked on the door at 35 Cave Road, and a man she had never seen before, John Fox, dressed in her brother-in-law's best and newest suit, opened the door, but just a crack. So now there's this whole orchestra of alarm, bells just going off all at once, red flags are popping up, and Aunt Emily is not one to be intimidated or scared off, and so she tries to push her foot into that little crack and wedge it open and get the door open a little bit further. And she asks the man who he was and what he's doing in the house, and she insists that she wants to see her sister-in-law. John Fox, who is also super suspicious of this woman, tries to close the door further, and it almost felt to Aunt Emily like he was trying to prevent her from looking inside the house. He told her who he was, and he said that he was there to take care of the boys, and that her sister-in-law had gone to Liverpool on some family business. So Aunt Emily tries to push harder, but at that moment, Robert Jr. and Natty come walking down the road, and they see her. They'd been out playing with friends. And so Robert runs up the street in a hurry, and he greets his aunt, and he tells her that mom wasn't home, and he tells her all of this dead uncle in Africa and now we're rich story. And Aunt Emily is not 100% convinced at any of this situation, but it's also not totally out of character for her sister-in-law to not inform her if she had to go somewhere for a few days. So I think... I think we we agree that maybe she was feeling a little bit upset that Emily had asked a stranger to watch the kids rather than her, like a family mm. member. I think so. Yeah. yeah. Which is totally understandable. Uh, it's just not at all what happened. So London's facing a heat wave. It's now July 17th, 1895. It's been nine days since Emily Coombs had gone to visit family. And the milkman who delivers to the Coombs house notices a terrible, terrible smell coming from the house. And he's not the only one who smells it. Remember, it's row houses. All the people live really close to each other. The neighbors can smell it as well. And so one of the neighbors, she's not really sure what else to do, so she tells Aunt Emily that something is really off in the Coombs house. So Aunt Emily contacts her mother-in-law, Robert Sr.'s mother, so the boy's grandmother, and they decide to send a telegraph to Emily's family in Liverpool asking if she were there. 
and they didn't have to wait for long before they received a reply that Emily was not there and she had not been there for quite some time. So Aunt Emily, accompanied by a friend and her oldest son, marched over to the Coombs house and started banging on the door. She had to bang harder and harder, and at one point, Robert Jr. just slowly opens the door. Aunt Emily pushed the door open and marched into the back parlor where John Fox and Natty had been sitting playing cards. Aunt Emily told Robert that she knew his mom was in this house and she wanted to see her immediately, otherwise she was going to get the police involved. Robert tried to calm his aunt down and tried several excuses as to why she couldn't see her right now. And all while this is going on, Natty simply climbed out the window, jumped the fence, and made a run for it, like he's just gone. Aunt Emily insisted on checking the upstairs bedrooms, but of course, she found the door locked. Robert Jr. insisted that he had no idea where the key was. So Aunt Emily had someone run to the landlord, or I think it might have been a landlady in this case, to get the spare skeleton key. And so... They brought the key, and Aunt Emily opened the door to the parents' bedroom, and the smell of decay and rotting flesh that had been festering in this room during these hot summer days must have been absolutely horrific. I don't even want to know how bad it was. I don't want to think about it, Mm. because, and of course, I'm sure you've all guessed it by now, there on the bed, covered with a sheet, was the body of Emily Harrison Coombs. She had been murdered by her own son nine days ago. A police officer was called and he found a knife on the bed as well as a baton. And there were flies everywhere. The body was swarming with maggots. It was horrible. Meanwhile, downstairs, Aunt Emily told Robert that he was a, quote, bad, wicked boy, end quote. And he replied that she should come closer and he would tell her, everything that had happened. Immediately, no. I'm not sure that you meant for that to be as, like, terrifying as it sounded just then. (laughs) Like, he was like, you should come come closer closer. and I'll tell you about how I killed mommy. (laughs) No. He said that their mother had beaten up Natty for stealing food and that Natty had told Robert that he wanted their mother dead, but that he couldn't do it, so Robert had to kill her. The night he slept in her bed, he had killed her by stabbing her twice in the heart. That was probably somewhere around 3 a.m. And he had left the room around 6 a.m. So there is speculation that after he had murdered his mother, he actually went back to bed and slept next to her body for another three hours. But to be honest, we can't know that at all. We can't be sure about that. I think it's possible that he was lying next to her, but I doubt that he would have gone back to sleep. I mean, who knows? It's possible. Also, there are rumors that Emily wasn't dead immediately, but that she was lying there slowly dying, and that in the morning Robert went to get Natty and showed him their mother who was still breathing. So Natty himself said that when he testified that in the morning Robert took him into the room, the mother was still breathing. I don't know, I I think it's possible that the young boy made a mistake there. I think he must have been like, maybe in shock or overwhelming situation. I think it would have been easy for him to think the mother was still breathing. Mm. Also, in his testimony, Robert said that he had kicked his mother during the night and she had pushed him. And then he got up and got the knife and stabbed her. And the way he phrases it could also sound a little bit confusing. He said, quote, 
About a quarter to four on Monday morning, a week ago, I slept with Mad at night and kicked about a great deal, and she punched me. Nettie was in his room. I did it by myself. End quote. So I could see people believing maybe that the punching and kicking happened after he stabbed her. But here's what the coroner had to say about Emily's injury. Quote, the whole of the brain was consumed by vermin and the right lung nearly destroyed by maggots. Through the base of the heart, which is partly eaten away, there is a clear stab and one also through the extreme right side. There is a notch on the spine corresponding with this wound. Uh, he also said that the bedding and underclothes had been stained with dry blood, which indicated that she had been alive when she was stabbed. And then he ends it by, there is no doubt that the death was instantaneous, end quote. I beg your pardon, sir, but is there, is there no doubt? I feel like there's definitely some doubt. We can safely say she was alive when she was stabbed, mm. I think, but we don't know that it was instantaneous. Instantaneous is... When I think instantaneous, I think of somebody being shot in the head. Yes. Or like the... The, the carotid uh, artery, which would be moments. Yeah, or the the submersible that went down yes. to the Titanic and yeah, exploded, these kind of instantaneous. That's yeah. literally instantaneous, exactly yeah. right. Yeah. A stab wound to the heart, I think, can be... Quick. Almost instantaneous, but I think the heart is still, you know, beating a little bit and... The second location of the other stab is interesting yeah. too, isn't it? And then, but I also think even if it wasn't instantaneous, I don't think that she would have been alive three hours later. Do you? It depends. With two stab wounds to the heart? Yeah. Yeah, no, not with two to the heart. No. No. Yeah. I mean, a stab wound to the stomach or something yeah. that's slowly bleeding yes. out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you're heart, right. You're right. Three hours. Mm. Yeah. That's why I think, I really think that Robert went in in the morning, uh, Nettie went in in the morning and, <sighs> I mean, the mother was covered with a blanket. He wouldn't even have seen it if she would have still been still breathing mm. slightly, you know? Yeah. I think maybe he, he wanted or he imagined it. I don't know. I could be completely wrong. Yeah. He probably believed whatever Robert Jr. told him. On top yeah, of that. It's yeah, just definitely. what he's going to remember. So they found Nettie, who had run away. He was actually hiding only a mere minutes from his house. So obviously Nettie, as well as Robert and John Fox, were taken into custody, even though John and Robert both said that John had nothing to do with it. So from the beginning, Robert told everyone that he did it and that John and Nettie had no idea, or that John had had no idea what had happened, that Nettie didn't do it, he did it all by himself. Emily was placed in a double coffin that was sealed shut you know, because of the smell and the severe state of decomposition the body was in. There was a glass plate inserted in the lid of the coffin and jurors were taken to the morgue to take a look at Emily's face. Now, this is of course horrible to imagine, but the glass for viewing was not something they came up with for Emily. It was not that unusual at the time. I mean, they even tried to have glass coffins at a point, which obviously didn't work out well. But mm -hmm. the, the glass, the viewing glass inserted in the in the lid was not that unusual. No. We talked about the obsession with death at the time in our episode, The Victorian Death Trip Part 2, Bring Out Your Dead, I think was the yes, title. Yes, yes. And we still have more to cover on the grave. There's going to be a part three. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. 
Now, Robert Sr. still had no idea what had happened at home. On 20th of July, his ship was approaching New York, and a man was sent over to the ship with a telegraph and a newspaper reporting about the murder. He handed it to the ship's captain, who then informed Robert Coombs Sr. of the tragedy, and Robert Coombs was absolutely devastated, and he prepared for his return back home. But before he left, some American newspapers managed to get his interview. This is from page one of the New York Times, dated 22nd of July, 1895. And this is from 1895, so the terminology is a little different. The father uses the term queer often in this uh, quote, but at that time, queer would have meant odd, unusual, uh, strange, is sort of what that would have meant at that time. So he gave the following quote to the newspapers. Quote, I knew the boy was queer, he said, speaking of Robert, the elder, but I never dreamed of this. It is terrible, terrible. I loved my wife devotedly, and to think... The speaker paused and looked straight into the mist gathering down at the bay. My elder boy, he continued, had an abnormally developed brain. I was informed by my family physician, who told me that Robert must be carefully watched. There was always something peculiar about him. The half-witted man, John Fox, who is associated with the boys in this terrible crime, is responsible for it, I believe. He was formerly employed on the national line of steamers, but became so irresponsible that he was not permitted to go to sea again. He frequently loitered around my premises, doing chores and running errands. Laterly? Later? That's not a word. Laterly, I have forbidden him to come to my house. When Robert was very young, he began to act queerly. As he grew older, he showed unusual intelligence for one of his years. He was a phenomenon in some respects, and yet there were traits developed in him which indicated the existence of some mental failure. Local doctors could not diagnosticate his trouble. He was at times the embodiment of all that is lovable in a child, and then would come over him a spell that would frighten us. For instance, if he read of a ghastly murder, his whole mind would seem to be absorbed in it. Nothing could divert him from it. In these spells, he would neglect the companionship of his playmates. After the spell passed, he would be a child again, as innocent and unsophisticated as any one of his age. One time, there was a murder near London. A man named Reed had committed a brutal crime. The papers were filled with the particulars. My boy read about it and ran away from home. He traveled miles to get a look at the murderer. According to the diagnosis of several physicians whom I called unto the case, the boy was afflicted with a preponderance of brain matter. They said he had too much brain tissue for the size of the skull, and that in consequence, the brain matter was crushed in too tight a space, and that accounted for the boy's eccentricities and also explained his periods of phenomenal mental brightness. I do not pretend to know what their theory was, but they told me if he lived to be 14 years old, the brain trouble would disappear. But he did improve as the years went by, and I had come to believe the doctors were right and that he would eventually be of sound mind. He kissed me on the docks in London two weeks ago Thursday, and then to think he went back and killed his mother. The youngest boy was not to blame. He acted entirely on the command of the elder boy. He was only 11 years old, and if the older boy told him it was all right, he would believe it. Mr. Coombs said he could gain nothing by going back now, 
and would wait and return on the France. He has been in the employ of the National Line 20 years. One of the boys visited New York last year, making the trip with his father on the steamer England of the National Line. Captain Hadley of the France says that Fox has sailed with him, but he became so useless that he was not allowed to come on board the steamer. On one occasion, he was found lurking in a dark gangway, lying in wait with a long knife, with which he proposed killing one of his shipmates. He was what Captain Hadley called a softy. Captain Hadley spoke highly of the Coons boys, both of whom he knew well, and expressed the belief that Fox was responsible for the crime. End quote. The same day, Robert Coombs Sr. heard the tragic news. His wife was placed to rest at Bow Cemetery, which is also called Tower Hamlets Cemetery Park, which is one of London's Magnificent Seven. It's fascinating, though, isn't it, how immediately they're like, well, it was this other guy's fault. It was... People are so quick to judge, you know. Of course, the media was all over the case, a child murdering his mother. It could only be a sign for the downfall of society, lack of morals, and the utter wickedness of the youth in general. Sounds familiar. It's a tale as old as time, romanticizing the past and seeing nothing but doom and gloom around us in the present. And I have to admit, I fall victim to that very often myself. And I have to actively remind myself that it's always been like this. Mm -hmm. Thanks, God. We do a lot of history episodes and we know that it's always been like this. Not everything was better back in the days and not everything was worse neither. And I read an interesting thing once in a book about how with the onset of the Industrial Revolution, there was an increase in mental health problems for middle-aged working class men. All of a sudden, they experienced paranoia, anxiety, and depression at an increased rate. I mean, of course, first of all, because at the time, people really only started to be interested in psychology, but also, it makes sense, they started to be laid off and needed to adapt to the new times. And I think we are at a similar point right now with late-stage capitalism, the third and fourth industrial revolution, the rapid progress of AI and all these things. It's just, I don't know, it's interesting to me how these things basically cycle constantly throughout history. Definitely. So, yeah. Anyway, back to Robert Jr., Nettie, and John Fox. So, Nettie testified that Robert had often talked about getting a knife, murdering their mother, and going to India afterwards. The inspiration for his dreams about India appeared to have come from the beloved Penny Dreadfuls, Uh, By the way, not only the Penny Dreadfuls got heavily blamed for Robert's wickedness, but also his love for playing his mandolin was presented as a sign for his criminal mind, because apparently only criminal masterminds and wicked people would play the mandolin. I didn't know that. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, obviously. Robert's case sparked the interest of many medical professionals, many psychiatrists, which, as I said, was a rather young field of science. And he was examined by doctors while he was awaiting his trial. He talked about how he had suffered from headaches, how he was still suffering from severe headaches, and how he had heard voices in his head whispering in his ear telling him to kill her, kill her, and how he had felt the deep desire to murder his mother. He also said that he was scared that the mother would kill Nettie, she would beat him often, throw knives after him, and had attacked him with a hatchet. I can't imagine that being true. Could it be possible? 
I mean, sure, we all know cases where parents acted like the perfect caregivers and behind closed doors there was extreme violence and, and nobody ever suspected a thing. I don't know. I'm so torn on this. What do you think? I'm also really torn. Part of me thinks he made it up to make his own sentence less severe and he knew exactly what he was doing. And part of me thinks that he was maybe suffering from severe delusions and paranoia. I don't know. I, I'm really honestly not sure what to believe. Yeah. And as this case goes on, it gets harder. So after Robert Sr. had returned to London, he visited his sons in jail often, at least every couple days. He gave other interviews where he explained that the defense would be using an insanity plea for Robert and that Natty was completely under the influence of his older brother. It sounds, again, a little bit like another case of folie à deux. Not entirely, but I think you know what I mean. Yeah. Where two people influence each other so heavily. Maybe she had actually slept either just Natty or both boys occasionally. Maybe not Robert because the doctors had told them not to hit him, right? Maybe really just Natty was the one who got beatings. It's possible. And I think there were some tensions at home at the time because Robert Sr., being gone most of the time, apparently he had suspected his wife of cheating before he had left this last time. And she being with two adolescent boys at home and Robert being a troublemaker, I think it must have been hard at times. And I I mean, at the time, children were punished by slapping them or hitting them at times, right? And if Robert was suffering from some form of psychotic break at the time, and maybe he made the slapping or hitting of Nettie into something way bigger in his head, like falsely remembering their mother throwing knives and hatches, because I can't see that happening. I don't know why. I, I don't take her as... The hatchet-throwing kind of mom? No, I don't yeah. see that really either. No. There's just no history of that. I also don't think he was... I think he believed it. I think Robert really believed it. Yeah, it's, I mean... Because he was like, he was convinced, he always said he's guilty and he was convinced that he would end up on the gallows. He never thought that he would go free. No, but he thought he'd done it to protect his brother? In his mind? In his mind. Yeah. For the boy's father, Robert was definitely the one in charge and Natty was following blindly. And I think we all can agree with that statement. The trial started on 9th of September, 1895. 1895, Robert was charged for the murder of his mother, Emily Coombs, and Nettie and John Fox were charged as his accessories. I think the trial didn't really start until 16th of September, which was a Monday. That's when the witnesses started to be called. Robert was wearing a white shirt with a collar, which was very fancy for a boy at the time, and over it a blue tennis jacket with a gold trimming, a gold piping, and white pants. Nettie was wearing knickerbockers, a jacket, and a bow tie. And even John Fox tried to look dapper. He was wearing a red handkerchief in the breast pocket of his jacket. Nettie's charges got dropped almost immediately. The judge had decided not to prosecute him. He was only a witness in the case from that point on. After Robert's charge was read out loud, Robert loudly replied, Guilty! Which made his defense attorney quite nervous, as they were actually pleading not guilty on reason of insanity. So the attorney was like, not guilty, he means not guilty. So Robert said, not guilty, and smiled. Oh, and in case you wonder, there was no difference in him being a child versus an adult murdering someone. Children were considered criminally responsible. John Fox also pled non-guilty. 
During the trial, Robert was often seen smiling, and then in some instances, he was starting to stick out the tongue towards the judge or the prosecutor, and he was pulling faces, so like very childlike behavior. Then on other times, he was just completely motionless. Many, many witnesses were called during the trial on both sides, neighbors, friends of the family, former school teachers of Robert. They all gave testimony to Robert's character. On the defense side, a Dr. Robert Walker testified as expert witness talking about how Robert's forceps birth could quite possibly have caused permanent brain damage due to compression of the skull with the forceps and how he had noticed that at times Robert's pupils would be of different size. And apparently this can be a sign of brain aneurysm or any other sort of brain injury. When asked about John Fox, Dr. Walker said that he had, quote, a badly shaped head and a highly arched palate, he is slow in understanding what is said to him and does not know common things you would expect an ordinary man to know. He is slow of apprehension, he has the peculiar hesitation in speech often noticed in weak minds, end quote. The trial ended on 20th of September 1895 and the Tamworth Herald on 21st of September 1895 printed the following excerpt, quote, the jury, after more than an hour's deliberation, returned into court and, in reply to the usual questions, the foreman said that they found Robert Coombs guilty, but strongly recommended him to mercy on account of his youth, and they added that they did not believe he realized the gravity of the crime or the serious nature of the act he was committing. Mr. Grantham said, I think he was the foreman, I submit that this is that the jury believe he was insane at the time. The judge said he must ask the jury to again retire and find the prisoner guilty simply or guilty on the act charge, but that he was insane at the time. The jury retired but returned in a minute or two and then replied to, to the question. They said they found Robert Coombs guilty, but that he was insane at the time he committed the act. The clerk of arraigns said, do you find John Fox guilty or not? And the foreman replied, not guilty on the evidence. Mr. Justice Kennedy said the order he had to make was that Robert Coombs be retained in strict custody as a criminal lunatic during Her Majesty's pleasure. Coombs, for the first time during the trial, allowed a tear or two to curse down his cheeks while he was taking place, and at the conclusion of the judge's remarks, the warders took hold of him and led him to the cell. As he left the dock, he continued repeating words which were not audible to those in court. Fox was acquitted. End quote. So Robert's sentence was to be detained in strict custody until the pleasure of Her Majesty be known, which meant an indefinite detention in prison, in Robert's case at Broadmoor, a fortified criminal lunatic asylum. And what he was saying when he left and that people couldn't understand, he was saying it to the guard. He said, it's all over now. Broadmoor Hospital is to this day a high-security psychiatric hospital in Berkshire, England, one of the oldest high-security psychiatric hospitals in the country. Over the decades and centuries, it housed some of the most notorious killers in the UK, uh, the Yorkshire Ripper, Peter Sutcliffe, for example. And the newspaper at the time, even though disappointed that Robert wouldn't be stepping foot on the gallows, were happy that he would spend the rest of his life in the highly secured facility. Honestly, Broadmoor, by the end of the 19th century, wasn't what we would imagine it would have been. It wasn't a grim place after all. 
As we mentioned before, psychology was a rather new field of science and psychiatrists were eager to study the minds of murderers and other insane criminals. So this is a report from 1867 describing the institution as follows. Quote, The new institution at Broadmoor in the parish of Sandhurst, Berkshire, two miles from the Wellington College, was opened for their reception at the beginning of 1864, and all the criminal lunatics who were at Bethlehem have been removed thither. The situation is one of the most convenient for the purpose that could have been chosen within a moderate distance of London. The buildings were planned in isolated blocks with a view to the more effectual separation of different classes of patients and one block was built of great strength, like a prison, for the special security of violent and dangerous men. It is probable, however, that the extensive alterations will be found necessary in the internal arrangement of the buildings, as well as in the laying out of the surrounding land, the estate comprising 300 acres, of which only 100 acres are yet under cultivation. The medical superintendent, Dr. John Mayer, in his last annual report, states that the health of the establishment is not altogether satisfactory, about 20 cases of fever having occurred in the blocks and in the cottages on the estate during the previous year, but only three of those cases were among the patients. The average number of resident male patients is 328 and of females 98, but there is room for 500 altogether. 18 died in the course of last year and six were discharged. Four attempted to escape, but did not succeed. Many of the patients are employed when in a fit condition in various work about the gardens and farm, in the wards, laundries, kitchen, and storeroom, or in the tailors, shoemakers, carpenters, and other workshops. There are classes for the elementary instruction of such as have not learned to read and write, with a good library for those who have, a billiard table with chess, drafts, bagatelle, cards, dominoes, croquet, and bowls for their amusement, besides music and occasional theatrical entertainments. A small number of the patients are voluntary attendants at religious worship in the chapel. End quote. There were big French windows to let in sunshine. You could see flower beds outside and green pastures. Almost all inmates were set up in a single cell. I think just some of the women were housed in more of a dormitory style. In Broadmoor, they believed that kindness should stand at the center of treatment. The staff was told never to twist the patient's limbs or to place a knee on them when holding them down if they were having an episode. There were no padded rooms at Broadmoor and also no straitjackets or other forms of restraint. Robert, at the time, was the youngest inmate ever at Broadmoor, and he was housed with the rich men in Block 2, the so-called Gentleman's Block. These men were free to wear their suits instead of a hospital gown, They would order luxurious meals like pheasant and oysters. Some even employed other inmates as servants. Even in there, there was a class system. Mm -hmm. You can't escape. Well, it's like if you visit Al Capone's jail cell, right? It's all... Yeah, true. Yeah. We really highly recommend the book, The Wicked Boy, because there's so much more information on Broadmoor and about Robert Coombs' time there. Robert started to work at Broadmoor in the tailor shop, and that's where they were sewing the inmates' clothing. He also learned to play more instruments and became a member of the Broadmoor Brass Band. And of course, he also received psychiatric treatment. So after 17 years at Broadmoor, on the 15th of March, 1912, Robert A. Coombs was deemed sane, 
and he packed up his things and left Broadmoor a free man. He was 30 years old at the time. While Robert was locked up at Broadmoor, his father had married a 23-year-old who died shortly after from pneumonia. John Fox had either died or migrated overseas. In 1913, Robert Coombs Sr. died of cancer, uh, only one day short of his 69th birthday. Natty had moved to Australia in 1913, and so Robert moved to Australia as well the next year. While Natty set up in Newcastle, New South Wales, northeast of Sydney, Robert set up home in Melbourne, Victoria. When World War I broke out, Robert returned to Sydney to join the military, where he was assigned to the 13th Battalion. A while later, he got selected for the battalion's military band, playing the coronet. In 1916, the 13th Battalion was sent to Turkey, where they participated in the Gallipoli Campaign. This was a military campaign that took place on the Gallipoli Peninsula in modern-day Turkey. It was launched by Allied forces, primarily British and French, in 1915 with the aim of capturing the Ottoman Empire's capital, Constantinople, and opening a sea route to Russia. However, the campaign faced fierce resistance from the Ottoman forces, difficult terrain, and the logistical challenges. The battle stretched for eight months. The battle stretched for eight months and resulted in heavy casualties on both sides. Ultimately, the Allies withdrew in early 1916, having failed to achieve their objectives and leaving a significant impact on the collective memory of nations involved. During this campaign, Corporal Robert A. Coombs was awarded the Military Medal for Conspicuous Bravery as a stretcher-bearer. He was one of the very few survivors of the 13th Battalion's stretcher-bearers. After the war, Robert returned to Australia, but this time settled in New South Wales, where he worked as a music teacher and vegetable gardener. He led a simple life, not like he had dreamed of as a boy. There were no treasures that made him rich, no adventures. He milked his cows, he ate vegetables from his garden, and washed his clothes down by a creek. He never married, but he adopted a son, a young boy, 11 years old, who had fled an abusive family situation with his stepfather. The boy had lived with his mother, stepfather, and five siblings on a neighboring farm, neighboring to Robert Coombs' home. And one day, in 1930, his stepfather had injured him badly with a bush hook which is basically a hooked blade on a handle used to cut like a scythe, I think, would you say? Yeah, something like that, yeah. Used to cut mm-hmm. down dense vegetation. And so he had terrible cuts on his arms, legs, and face. And when Robert heard what had happened to the neighbor's boy, he offered to take him in. He made sure the boy went back to school, he fed him, he took care of him, and in return, the boy helped Robert with the household and the farm chores. Robert A. Coombs died on 7th of May 1949 at age 67. I think he died of heart and kidney failure. And when he died, he left everything to his adopted son. I'm not sure he was officially adopted, but he was like his ward. Yes, he was his son for, yeah. Yeah. His younger brother, Nettie, had died on 16th of September 1946 at age 63 in Newcastle. I think he died of lung cancer. Yeah. And that's it. That's the story of Robert Alan Coombs. And it's, I'm so torn. I'm so torn. Well, obviously, this is a horrible thing he did. He's a horrible person. And then later on, you're like, but what happened here? Why he never offended again? He was considered by all people who met him afterwards as a very good person. He helped people. He kept to himself. There was never anything that would have creeped people out or 
he was so good to the boy he took in. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of those... I still don't know what to think. Half of me thinks that he's a manipulative psychopath who just did all this stuff. And the other half of me thinks that he legitimately had something awful happen psych- psychiatrically and went through this yeah, thing. A, a psychotic break. Yeah. I think that's what happened. And I think he suffered at the time from hallucinations. Yeah. Like when he said he heard voices. Right. When he said he saw his mother throw hatchets. I don't think he really knowingly lied about that. Yeah. I could be wrong, but he never offended me. When I heard this, when he was 30, after 17 years, he was released and a free man. I was like, oh my God, worst mistake ever. Because we know this story so well. It rarely ever has a happy ending, right? Mm -hmm. That was my first thought. But here, yeah. I don't know. I think I'm going to be thinking about this one for a while because yeah. it doesn't it doesn't fit with what you expect. And it's so sad. Either way, it's incredibly sad. sad. Horrible. Yeah. yeah. Ugh. Do you have something good? I do. We had such a nice time with our friends came in to visit and we went to see Bruce Springsteen, which was great. And it was just really nice. It was good to see friends that we don't see as often as we'd like. And yeah. How about you? Um, my something good is that I'm halfway done stacking the firewood for winter. Nice. Which, it sounds so weird. And I, if you would have asked me 10 years ago if I would ever be happy to stack firewood for days, I would have said <laughs> absolutely not, of course. But now I'm like, I'm stacking the firewood. I'm doing it by myself because obviously Philip is not here. And I'm doing it slowly, but I'm doing it. And I'm just thinking how how lucky we are and how privileged to have enough wood to k- keep us warm in winter. Oh, yeah. It's really, yeah, makes me really happy yeah. to do that. And it always warms twice, apparently, because uh, I sweat a lot. That's right. And burn it's... a lot of calories while stacking That's wood. right. It warms <laughs> twice, once when you're stacking it and once when you're enjoying <laughs> But it's, listen, you don't have to go to the gym on those days. You're getting a good workout in. It's true. It's true. And I'm getting better on the treadmill. I've been back really consistently now during the last two, three weeks. Nice. So I'm very happy about that as well. Nice. If you enjoyed it or any of our other episodes, please do us the huge favor and leave us a rating and or review. You know everything else. You do. I think we're going to go now. Yeah. Please. Tell your pets we said hi and we love them and hug them from us and be kind to them. Be kind to other humans and be kind to yourself, even if it's hard. Especially. Yeah. And if you're going through hell, keep going. Just keep going. Just keep going. Bye.